This Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Hughes Network Systems, delivering innovation for civilian and military connectivity. It is time to expect more from your network. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. The Defense Department says it can't find any evidence the solar winds or Microsoft Exchange intrusions affected it. DOD Chief Information Security Officer Dave McEwen told a Senate Armed Services Subcommittee Wednesday the department didn't find any indications of compromise from either intrusion. NextGov reports the department did find 560 out of its 1,500 instances of solar winds did have the back door hackers used to penetrate systems. Five members of the House Oversight and Reform Committee want details on how the Office of Management and Budget and General Services Administration will manage the billion dollars Congress gave the Technology Modernization Fund. The members write Acting Director of OMB Shalonda Young and the Acting GSA Administrator Katie Kale to clarify how agencies will pay back money they take from the fund. FCW reports one request in the letter is an explanation about how the TMF board will choose projects to approve. A new wave of customers is coming to military exchange stores in the United States next month. A new Defense Department order will let more than half a million Pentagon and Coast Guard civilian employees shop at the stores. Military Times reports the memo from Acting Undersecretary of Defense for Personnel and Readiness, Virginia Penrod, says civilian employees will use their common access cards to shop in the stores. President Biden says racial equity is one of the central pillars of his coronavirus relief plan. Promoting equity across the economy also means taking a look at equity in the federal workforce. Shirley Jones is the new president of Blacks in Government. She's managing associate general counsel at the Government Accountability Office. Shirley, welcome. It's great to see you again. Thanks for coming on the program. What are the organizations, in your view, that are doing diversity, inclusion, and equity well across government doing? And what are the organizations that are struggling? What's the gap that they can fill to improve? Well, thank you for having me, Francis. First of all, the agencies that are doing well they recognize that having a diverse and inclusive workforce is a more productive workforce. And they recognize that the more that they strive towards that, they're better able to accomplish their agency's mission. I also think those agencies that are doing well are actually willing to engage with organizations like Blacks in Government and other organizations like the Federal Asian Pacific, Pacific Advisory Council so that we can partner with them on addressing inequities in recruitment, in development, and in training. Uh, those agencies that are lacking, in my opinion, are looking at their data through rose-colored glasses and not planning, not having a diversity and inclusion strategic plan to assist them in being a more diverse workforce. As you were talking about the shortcomings there, Shirley, the word strategic came to my mind before you said it. Um, how can organizations like yours help agencies that are looking to improve their performances, that are looking to do better, build that strategy? Absolutely. Uh, organizations like Blacks in Government are designed to assist agencies in leveling the playing field we have members all across the country that meet with agency officials. One of the things that we do 
all across the board is look at the agency-specific data and help them to highlight the gap. For example, the Office of Personnel Management issues a federal recruitment report, and we're often looking at that data. The data for African Americans in particular suggests that the recruitment numbers are up, but they're up in the lower graded clerical administrative positions. And so organizations like Blacks in Government hope to show them where the data has those gaps and where they need to be looking at making improvement. One of the gaps that you've talked about since you have taken over the position of president at Blacks in Government is the disparity between what the raw numbers are across government and what the numbers look like at the, in the higher grades and in the senior executive service. What, what are the strategies that successful organizations are taking specifically at their very highest levels to make sure that, those, that the high levels of their organization are representative of the people they're delivering mission to? Of course, as I noted, those agencies have a plan, but it really starts with having what we call a feeder pool. And that means that those agencies at every rung of the career ladder, they're looking to have a diverse group of candidates that are ready to move up into those higher levels. And it takes them looking at what are the challenges that your agency has that prevent those uh, employees at the lower grade levels from moving up into the higher grade. How much is a, a mentoring and personal development on an individual basis type of program important in this area, Shirley? Oh, it's absolutely imperative. And that's definitely one of the things that Blacks in Government focuses on. Of course, at the core of our mission is advocacy, but we also focus a lot on career development. We have internally developed programs such as our Now Generation program that focuses on mentoring and networking. We have a leadership academy that was developed by the USDA Graduate School. And we also have our National Training Institute where we offer career development each year. And we'll do that later this year virtually. But agencies need to focus on the same thing that we're focusing on in Blacks and government. And that's why we're doing it, because we see that there's a lack of it across government. We just have a couple of minutes left, Shirley. I wonder what you are able to do and what your organization helps people, helps your members with to get them prepared to be ready to go when an agency says it's time. Um, how, how, how does one successfully position him or herself to be able to step into the senior executive service and to be able to take on the very highest level assignments? Um, what does one need to do to get into those positions? And that's exactly what we are indeed focusing on. Uh, just last month, I myself did a class for our organization on leading change. And so what we're doing is helping our members and prospective members, and indeed any employee that wants to join our efforts, we're showing them how to position themselves by making sure that they're getting the right developmental assignments, they're getting the appropriate training, because we do believe that is definitely a part of it, making sure that you have the tools to succeed. Shirley Jones, Madam President, congratulations on uh, your new job. Thank you very much for joining me today. Thank you. It was my pleasure.
Up next, getting ahead of the hackers instead of waiting for the first strike. Straight ahead on Government Matters, how the new national cyber director could flip the script on cyber criminals. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. Welcome back. Chris Inglis is the first ever national cyber director nominee. If the Senate confirms him, he'll lead the coordination of cybersecurity measures in government. Bob Bigman's founder of 2B Secure. He's former chief information security officer at the Central Intelligence Agency. Bob, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. Um, the significance here, it strikes me, is that the national cyber director nominee is someone, first of all, in the cyber community, everybody knows and everybody has spoken extremely highly of. What's the significance of that in your mind in that selection? Absolutely the number one right choice. Uh, this is a man who has years of experience and skills in cyber and understands, I, from my perspective, understands how to bring people together and work across different parts of the government to, uh, to actually get a real, hopefully a real and effective strategy implemented. Uh, I think it's a wonderful choice. And uh, I think and I hope it reflects the level of interest this time uh, the administration has in getting something really accomplished in cyber. So uh, very optimistic. Well, I, I, nobody certainly could accuse the administration of not thinking about or paying attention to cyber. They jumped on solar winds response. They jumped on exchange response, um, appointed other people and Newberger and others that a lot of people knew and a lot of people thought very highly of in the cyber realm. The other item is the money that we see the administration wants to spend a lot. This most recent skinny budget, more money for CISA. What does the money piece of it look like in your view, and where would you like to see that money go if Congress gives the agencies the kind of cyber money that the administration's talking about, Bob? Yeah, a great question. So, you know, what we need to do is, while I'm a big fan of strategy, and I've written many of them, uh, you know, we, we have to start getting serious about actually securing systems. Um, that, that's what we're actually here to do, is to make sure our systems are sufficiently resilient uh, to cybersecurity attacks. And we, we have frankly been spending money in that direction. So my suggestion would be, you know, the very first thing is we have to put out some actual standards inside the government, not FISMA guidance, not, you know, uh, you need to have this type of capability, you have to demonstrate that uh, uh, policy, you have to have this procedure. No, we actually need to do like they do in Singapore where they actually have a real effective strategy and put together cybersecurity standards that you're gonna get graded on in your agency as to whether or not you've complied with how you do multi-factor authentication, you know, how you do data encryption. Very specific, very focused cybersecurity standards. That, that's where we need to um, spend the money. How does that look different than what we have with FISMA now? You know, FISMA is a, a set of general guidance and, and recommendations for the agencies without specifying a solution. Now, I'm not saying you have to specify a specific product, but we need much more granular standards that actually specify how you do remote, and I'll pick an example, how you do remote access for employees. It's not just basically use a VPN and connect to the corporate network and, and, and do some degree of isolation. No, no, no. We need actual specific standards that say, you know, you don't use things like RDP 
or you have to have two-factor authentication for any time you access um, a specific data set. Uh, these are things that you can actually take to an organization and measure whether they did do it or didn't do it. You, you can't measure, you, you, today we, we really can't measure FISMA compliance. What does this look like, Bob? Does this look like a Fatara scorecard only directed only at cybersecurity in those five, six, eight, ten, whatever subcategories that you listed a few of a moment ago? Is this something that comes out of Chris Inglis's office if he is confirmed to be the national cyber director? Does this live at CISA? Who, who administers this? And do the agency IGs, for example, that do the FISMA audits now, do the audits of whatever this turns out to be? Yeah, great question. I, I think it's a CISA job. I think it fits right into their mission and role of res, uh, area responsibilities. And I love the Fatera uh, uh, scorecard idea. I think that's, to me, that's the way you grade things is basically you give them very uh, measurable, manageable uh, criteria that are largely you did succeed or you didn't succeed. And uh, you, you basically run through all aspects of cybersecurity, specifically technical cybersecurity on how you secure your, your Windows systems, your Linux systems, and your cloud-based systems. And you give them a specific time frame on which to accomplish it. So yeah, I, I think the Fatera analogy is, is, um, is, is right on. All right, I'm gonna ask you the question I've been asking cyber people for 15 years in the federal government, Bob. Is there any progress in us getting ahead of the curve on cybersecurity risk rather than continuing to be reactive? No, no there hasn't been any progress. Um, the other aspect that I didn't mention in the standards and why I think we need a better strategy is, and this was part of the Solarium study that uh, Chris was a, a member of, is we have to get serious about working with the vendors and the people who produce code and produce systems, software, hardware, and firmware. And not only do we have to give the government agency standards, we have to start giving them standards. You know, very much, you've heard me say this before, uh, like how we built safe cars, right? We, we, can, we can tell you how to put a, a, a safe car together, but we can't tell you how to secure a computer. You know, what, what type of sense does that make? I mean, it's time for us to actually get real uh, and get serious about telling uh, the various uh, software and hardware uh, vendors that if you're going to sell to the U.S. government, your systems have to meet the following standards. And by the way, NIST, like they once did, will test for compliance with these standards. Bob Bigman, thanks as always. Great to have you back. Sure. Thank you. Up next, preparing for a skinny defense budget in 2022. Straight ahead on Government Matters, where the diet might start and how long it could last. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's on our website, govmatters.tv. Be right back. Welcome back. The Biden administration's top line budget request for fiscal 2022 is out. The proposed skinny budget includes $715 billion for the Defense Department. Mackenzie Eaglin is resident fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. Mackenzie, welcome back. It's great to see you. What was your takeaway as you looked both at the top line and what the administration put out about what's below the top line? So as my friend and colleague from the Clinton White House, Gordon Adams, calls this the Goldilocks budget, I would endorse that characterization, right? So 
President Biden was under tremendous pressure to cut the defense budget by up to 10 percent. His own Senate Budget Committee chairman wants to do that and many others. And he's been called upon by numerous uh, Republican leadership to increase the budget to buy this, to afford the defense strategy. And that would be about another 30 billion. This is flat to declining. It's about a half point negative real growth for the budget. Uh, but I actually think that's probably best case scenario given the politics around this issue. The budget request is one thing, and the real budget and the, the real authorization is the, the more important thing. We'll hit on that in a moment. But what do you look for, what will you look for when the White House puts out the actual detail of the budget? Sounds like it's coming not till sometime next month. That's right. So I wouldn't expect, uh, as is typical, a five-year defense budget, right? I, all indicators are that they're swamped, they're overwhelmed. That not just that defense is not a priority, but actually getting the budget created is not a high priority right now with other pending legislation. Uh, just this week, House Armed Services Committee Chairman Adam Smith put out an all call, you know, a, a five alarm alert saying uh, publicly, the White House won't take my calls. We need the budget before May 10th so we can actually get an authorization bill on time. So if he's worried, that, that makes me definitely worried because. Uh, not just because of the, you know, getting late information and lack of oversight, but really because it almost sets us up for a guaranteed continuing resolution in the spring. Add, uh, excuse me, in the fall. Add to that the absence of uh, a fiscal, you know, a two-year budget deal where we know this top line's in advance, where both parties have already agreed on it. You're almost guaranteeing that outcome, which is really unfortunate for the defense department. Given how late we are into the year, I want to draw on your Capitol Hill experience. Is it possible that appropriators and authorizers might just start in a couple of weeks, especially given the comments we heard from Chairman Smith in the last couple of days? Uh, could they just get going and not wait for the White House formal request to come to the Hill? Absolutely. And they're doing that, which is great. Right? That, that is what you need them to, to, to start. Posture hearing season has begun. So various combatant commanders have already started their testimony and the committees are hearing even from some outside um, subject matter experts too, which is also great to fill the time to give them more breadth on some issues and depth as well. So yes, absolutely. I mean, the staffers know how to do this. They, they have their tables ready. They can sort of plug and play when the numbers come out based on the guidance from this new team. So you're making really their point, right? Which is they didn't have a lot of time to make a, a bunch of changes. We know that will be next year's budget where it will really be full Biden ownership, and they will make, I think, pretty big changes next year. But there's still going to be some tweaking at the margins, and the Hill will have to sign off on that. And, uh, yeah, they can start now, and they absolutely should. What do you make of the conversations that are happening uh, among the services about different capabilities and, uh, and so on? Is that tied to the budget somehow, or is that a separate conversation in your view? So a budget that doesn't grow with inflation, as this administration has proposed, is a declining budget for the Defense Department. They lose buying power. It's about $10 billion. So each service is going to have a bill come due for that, right? If you put it next to what they were planning to do under the previous administration's guidance, it's a much bigger cut. So it's more like $27 billion. Um, excuse me, $27 billion from the defense strategy number that you would buy, about $9 billion from last, the last team. So yes, so I think that part of it is that there's a squeeze on the services and there's not a lot of civilian leadership yet confirmed in the department. And so, um, you know, the family feud, the uniform family feud is spilling into the public domain. But it's also about this genuine roles and missions question, right? So until the Biden team updates the defense strategy and puts their stamp on it, the services are unclear whether 
duplicity and redundancy is actually what you want to avoid the fait accompli in the Asia Pacific scenario in particular, or if it's unaffordable. They need civilian leadership to give them that guidance, and right now they don't have it. And that's where you're seeing, for example, the Army and the Air Force get into a long-range fires dispute. Only the civilians can settle them. Um, you, I want to tie a couple of things together that you've laid out there in the little time that we have left, Mackenzie. Should we expect in the 2023 budget, the next one, not the current one that we're discussing, that that's where we'll see the money go to whatever the new Biden administration strategy documents that you just talked about will include? Yes, but you'll start to see uh, you know, breadcrumbs towards those efforts, those lines of effort in this budget as well, right? So they will rebin uh, funding, particularly for climate change and for COVID response and relief, but also, you know, by bringing in the money for Afghanistan into the base budget in particular, and then, of course, drawing down, announcing the drawdown of troops, as Todd Harrison spoke uh, recently, that's also going to be money that's potentially moved around. They'll also continue to increase, I believe, research and development funding along the lines of the last administration. Uh, particularly putting money into space and satellite investments in particular, you know, more hypersonic, more artificial intelligence. But it's not going to be wholesale changes. There may be one or two sort of program cancellations or extensions in terms of delay. But otherwise, you're really going to see, I think, more uh, moving money around. Mackenzie Eaglin, thanks very much as always. Thanks. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's at govmatters.tv for a preview of every newscast. You sign up for our daily program guide by texting GovMatters to the number 58671. I'm back in two minutes. In tonight's event spotlight, ACT IACS Acquisition Innovation 2021 is coming. You'll learn firsthand how government and industry are working together to build adaptability, resilience, and speed and repeatability into the acquisition process. It's this coming Tuesday, April 20th, virtually from 8 in the morning to 4 in the afternoon. You can learn more and sign up govmatters.tv slash events. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrice Haddon. Our director of content is Alan Holmes. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group. You have been listening to the Government Matters Podcast, sponsored by Hughes Network Systems. Stay tuned for a brief interview with Tony Bardo of Hughes about how government can use software to find wide area networks to deliver the best digital experience for constituents and staff. Government agencies are continuing the transition to the Enterprise Infrastructure Solutions Vehicle, EIS, for telecom-related services. Industry experts are calling on agencies to use it for citizen-facing government. Tony Bardo is here. He's Assistant Vice President for Government Solutions at Hughes Network Solutions. Tony, welcome. It's good to talk to you again. What does the EIS vehicle provide for agencies 
to make these kinds of transitions, to do the network modernization that they need to do? It's a great question, uh, as you always do lead off with, uh, Francis, and it's good to see you again, talk to you again. But uh, here's, it, it's more interesting really to talk about what it hasn't uh, delivered yet. And uh, GSA fa faced an interesting conundrum when they were uh, putting EIS together and it was necessary to do so and they had the right vision for it and the right ideas to bring in some new blood and new new vendors and new kinds of companies. But the the services available to to the government at the time were still the same services that have been around for 20 years. Um, and that is the the MPLS network um, services that worked during the end of FTS 2001 and throughout the networks contract. So um, the, the, the new services, the new modern services were just emerging. These are the new SD-WAN, the managed broadband services. And these are the kinds of services that are better equipped for handling the large surge and surges of bandwidth demand for the agencies, particularly at the edge. So what was what the agencies were sort of presented with was, here's a new contract and it's got a new timetable and it's got a new scope of work and a new span of work and a new body of, 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 uh, of a performance period, but it didn't really have the new services that met the goal or the, the mantra of transforming. So what we saw in some of the early um, fair opportunities that, uh, that the agencies were issuing, and it really took them a long time to start issuing them, um, but they're, 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 they were basically asking for like-for-like -like services. And that wasn't really a, uh, a plan for transforming. And it didn't, the, many of the fair opportunities, unfortunately, did not show the, the vision for transforming. SD-WAN was emerging, so it was a tough call. It was a, you know, we've got to get this contract, new contract out, because the old contract is aging, it's expiring, it's got its uh, limited time frame. So it was an interesting, um, you ask an interesting question. It, it, the platform really wasn't ready there to, to, uh, to transform and leap into transformation and modernization. It's starting to happen, though. You uh, gave me a term before we started recording, and I want to tell, want you to tell me what it means and why it's important. Managed service provider, why does that matter to agencies, and, and why is that concept helpful to them in these transitions, Tony? The concept, concept is really helpful because the, the, pro, the providers and the services and managing them um, makes it easier for the agencies. These, these agency telecom managers have really got it tough. They 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 have this they have this contract that they were uh, compelled to use and and encouraged to use, and they wanted to modernize. Uh, they're running their own networks today every day. They have to issue these fair opportunities to compete the business among the uh, providers, the the prime uh, contractors on EIS. And they've got to do it all at the same time and all with the same workload and workforce that they that they have. So these are really, really tough. Getting obtaining managed services takes the burden off of the limited staffs of the agencies 
and lets the lets the um, service providers do the work. So managed service providers can then um, offer these services, manage the networks, manage the uh, security aspects of the networks, manage the routing of the traffic on the networks through the modern architectures of broadband, managed broadband, and managed SD-WAN. Tony, there's always more great ideas to talk about than there is time to talk about them. It's great to talk to you again. Thanks very much. Thank you, Francis. Take care.